things happen when people sell their business. Closely held companies, entrepreneurial companies, they run around and make a series of business decisions. Some of those decisions are actually diminutive of value or dilutive of value, not accretive of value, but because you have chosen to surround yourself only with people that are like the emperor's village and no one's telling you, hey, this is a bad decision or hey, this decision could really affect the enterprise value if you were to go sell, you are the emperor. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Women Building Wealth Membership Group, the complete proven step-by-step -step course to guide women from novice to confident investor. To learn more, go to womenbuildingwealth.net. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, Andrew Sherman. Andrew, are you ready to rock? I'm ready to rock. As we said earlier, it's Andrew Squared today. <laughs> Andrew is a partner in the corporate department of the legal firm, Seifarth Shaw, and serves as the corporate office chair for the Washington, D.C. team. He focuses his practice on issues affecting business growth for companies at all stages, including developing strategies for licensing and leveraging intellectual property and technology assets, intellectual asset management and harvesting, as well as international corporate transactional and franchising matters. He has served as a legal and strategic advisor to dozens of Fortune 500 companies and hundreds of emerging growth companies. He has represented U.S. and international clients from early stage, rapidly growing startups to closely held franchisers and middle market companies to multi-billion dollar international conglomerates. He also counsels on issues such as franchising, licensing, joint ventures, strategic alliances, capital formation, distribution channels, technology development, and mergers and acquisitions. And here's where it gets amazing. Andrew has written nearly 30 books on the legal and strategic aspects of business growth, franchising, capital formation, and the leveraging of intellectual property, most of which can be found on Amazon, and we'll have a link in the show notes. He has also published many articles on similar topics and is a frequent keynote speaker at business conferences, seminars, and webinars. He has appeared as a guest commentator on CNN, NPR, and CBS News Radio, among others, and has been interviewed on legal topics by The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Forbes, U.S. News and Report, and other publications. Mr. Sherman serves as an adjunct professor in the MBA program at the University of Maryland and as well as the law school at Georgetown University and is a multiple recipient, recipient of the University of Maryland at College Park's Crow Excellence in Teaching Award. My goodness, Andrew, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. You covered all of them. Uh, happily married for 33 years to Judy and I've got two fantastic kids whose careers are launched and I'm really looking forward to my worst investment ever podcast and that somebody's going to be introducing me somewhere down the road and saying the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and my worst investment ever podcast. Boom, shake the room. <laughs> well, I, yeah, drop that mic and actually your biggest accomplishment is 33 years of a happy marriage. So congratulations on that. Absolutely. Happy wife, happy life. There you go. And, and that concludes the show, ladies and gentlemen. The best, the best tidbit we've got. <laughs> All right. Women business owners are listening. Yes, exactly. You want to be happy? Keep your wife happy. Well, 
Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have a little bit of a different format today. I thought with Andrew having so much experience in the space of businesses and selling businesses and the intellectual property and other types of property rights, that it would be a great opportunity to maybe Andrew could go through some of the mistakes and, and, and things that he's seen over the years. Uh, so he's prepared himself for that. So why don't we take it away and let's say... Now it's time to share the worst investment mistakes that you've ever seen. Take it away, Andrew. All right. Well, we're going to learn some new acronyms on today's show. Um, the first acronym is DCMBU. And uh, I wish this were a call-in live podcast because I would be happy to give a copy of my M&A book to anyone that could figure out that acronym because it certainly stumped a lot of uh, MBA classes and law students over the years. But DCMBU stands for Don't Call My Baby Ugly. Now, we all know that when you're in the park and you see a stroller and you come up to a new mother, even if that baby is the ugliest baby you have ever seen, the only response, of course, is, oh my God, what a beautiful baby. Well, guess what? Selling a business is like having that baby in the stroller. And let's just say the baby is not is not that attractive. Now, it doesn't mean it won't be attractive down the road or be attractive in the arms of the buyer, but what you first biggest mistake that a seller can make is getting very defensive of their business. And remember, for many sellers, the business is their child. You know, it is the equivalent of their child. It, it may be the child that they never had. It could be the child that they wish they'd had. They've certainly, in some cases, put more time and participation into building that business than they have in raising their own family. And so if you're going to be selling your business, you have to think of the process as literally standing in front of hundreds of people and opening up your kimono wide and being ready for the criticism that comes with that. And that is one huge mistake. Remember, due diligence has gotten to the point today in a post-Madoff and post-Worldcom era where the depth and breadth of questioning the kinds of things you're going to have to be answering is very, very extensive. Uh, it has slowed down transactions. It's made transactions more expensive. But what most people don't talk about is the psychological impact and defensiveness that many sellers have when someone's coming in and basically playing Monday morning quarterback on every business decision that they've made, on every customer and channel and relationship and intellectual property decision and all of that. So I would say, you know, be ready for this process, be ready for it, not only with the right data room and checklists and the right advisors, but be in a mental state that says, you know what, I've put 20 years of my life into this business. And it's possible that not every buyer is going to come along and tell me that I am the most beautiful business in the world. In fact, most buyers and buyers counsel and their advisors are trained and are paid to find the flaws in your business. So that would be biggest mistake ever, number one. Does that make sense? That's fantastic. I want to hear the next one. All right. So the next one is, a, is sort of a cousin of that. And it's another acronym, which is ENC syndrome. ENC syndrome is kind of a cousin of DCMBU, uh, but it's a slightly different issue respect to leadership and governance and culture. And ENC syndrome stands for the emperor's new clothes. 
Now, if your listeners remember the children's story of the emperor's new clothes, the emperor hires tailors, aka consultants, or not good consultants, and in comes the tailors and builds the emperor what is allegedly a beautiful suit of clothing. The emperor, believing the advice of the consultants, goes out into the village and promptly parades around with nothing on. The scariest part of the story, beyond don't trust consultants that don't know what they're doing, but the scariest part of the story, if you recall, is that nobody says anything. Nobody says anything until a little five-year-old child tugs on their father's jacket coat and says, Daddy, why is the emperor walking around with no clothes? <laughs> things happen when people sell their business. Closely held companies, entrepreneurial companies, they run around and make a series of business decisions. Some of those decisions are actually di diminutive of value or dilutive of value, not accretive of value, but because you have chosen to surround yourself only with people that are like the emperor's village and no one's telling you, hey, this is a bad decision or hey, this decision could really affect the enterprise value if you were to go sell, you are the emperor and you only wanna to be told good news and good things about the business and how well everybody's doing and about all the new sales and everything else. And it will come back to haunt you because buyers and their lawyers and their accountants and their investment bankers and their consultants are like the five-year-old child. They will call BS on you. They will challenge it. And not only that, but it will ultimately affect uh, enterprise value and the price and the terms paid. So that is uh, to, you know, the, the ENC syndrome really goes to the heart of leadership and governance and culture and how are decisions made. One thing that I've seen a lot of companies not do is set up boards or advisory boards. You know, and a good advisory board can help prepare you for the selling process by essentially being that five-year-old child, tugging on your jacket. Remember, everything is about sequence in life, right? When do you want the jacket tugged? Do you want the jacket tugged when you're in the middle of a sale process, which can be very embarrassing and derail the transaction? Or do you want the jacket tugged six months before the sale process when you still have time to fix it? You still have time to correct it. We have a process that we go through with a lot of clients. We call it mock due diligence, mock due diligence or fake due diligence. And I'll tell you, it doesn't win me a lot of happy clients because I have to pretend to be a very persnickety buyer. I have to go in and tell them this is wrong and that's wrong and that's not adding to value. And this is a problem. And, you know, there may be any number of things that we identify. And of course, our clients on the sell side get very angry with us. But I say, if you think I'm being a jerk, wait till you see what a real buy side advisory team looks like, particularly in what we often refer to as David and Goliath transactions. You know, as you said in the opening, I do work for both Davids and Goliaths. But between you, me, and your listeners, I have a soft spot in my heart for Davids over Goliaths. Now, if you're a Fortune 500 client of mine and you're listening, I'm just being honest. Remember, when a Fortune 500 client sells a division or does a spinoff or a divestiture, I mean, yes, lives are affected. Earnings might go down a few pennies that quarter or up a few pennies that quarter. 
if the division was viewed as uh, as dilutive. But when a seller sells his business or her business, that's usually not only a life-changing event, it's a multi-generation changing event. Imagine an entrepreneur who starts with nothing, builds up their company, and one day sells it for $100 million. You know, that's enough money for many generations to live on if it's properly invested and protected. The ability to change people's lives, change their children and future grandchildren's lives is a privilege for me. If during the mock due diligence process, I can help find pockets of improvement, I can identify problems that I know buyer's counsel will identify, then we're turning it from the worst investment ever you know, to the best investment ever. And let's face it, everyone starts businesses with the hope that it will be the best investment, not just of their money, but of their time, of their effort, of their sweat, of their lost opportunities, the time they don't get to spend with their families. And I do get very sad when I see people work their entire lives to build a business and then get a very disappointing result because of things that could have been avoided. So mm. I would say uh, mock due diligence, very, very important. And therefore not doing mock due diligence would be the third mistake. Okay. Uh, and by the way, I want to just butt in here and say, to summarize, point number one, stay positive, right? Like absolutely. don't, you know, stay positive. People are going to, you know, come at your business. Point number two, stay negative. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty well summarized. Yeah. Uh, it is sort of the yin and the yang of both. Yep. And I thought about for those fans out there who listen to and, and, and are fans of the Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross show, the, the movie, the particular scene where uh, Alec Baldwin is saying, if you can't take this abuse, how are you going to take the abuse you get on a sit? Exactly. <laughs> a little bit like the other movie where now I'm drawing up all, uh, all the good men. You can't handle the truth, you know, right? Exactly. I mean, a few good men. That. I mean, Remember, you know, you work very hard. You're very, very proud of the business. But, you know, your team, let's put it this way. You're not doing yourself or your team any favors if you suffer from either DCMBU or ENC syndrome. And if you're listening and you're thinking that might be me, you know, you know who you are. I mean, it's, it, it takes a lot of uh, introspection to recognize that this might be one of your faults. The type of person that cooks a meal and wants everyone to ooh and ah about how great the food tastes. I mean, people's taste buds are very different. It's that way in building a business. You have every right as the 100% owner to build the business in the way you see fit, unless you pull back for a minute, listen carefully to this podcast and go, you know what? One day this business might be for sale. And the mm -hmm. people who are buying it may view the business very differently than I do. So do I want to build the business for myself? Or do I want to build the business with the eyes of the buyer, which is another acronym, EOTB, come in every day and say, is this business for sale? Could it be for sale? Why would somebody actually want to buy my business? Uh, when we get to the end of the podcast, you've asked me for my one big thing. So I'm going to come back to that one in, in, at the end. But that's a sneak preview of what's coming in terms of probably the biggest takeaway. So now, Andrew, we are on point number four, EOTB. What's interesting is you haven't even talked about numbers or something like that. Yeah. A lot oh, of people yeah. go into the, you know, thinking about selling their business and they think it's all about numbers, but you're telling us about emotion, about preparedness, about those types of things. That's very, that, that's a great lesson right there. 
Well, I tell you, one of the core philosophies I've, I've always had is numbers follow, they don't lead. Numbers follow, they don't lead. And what I mean by that, especially in the context of M&A, is numbers don't just happen, right? Numbers happen as the result of attitudes, of culture, of leadership, of governance, of goal setting, of motivating people. One of the books that I wrote recently, available on Amazon, maybe of interest to some of your listeners, is called The Crisis of Disengagement. The Crisis of Disengagement is about how high employee disengagement has uh, become in not only the United States, but around the world. Well, think about it. If you were going to buy a company, right, and you found out that that company's level of disengagement among their workforce was at the norm, and the norm, I don't want to knock you out of your chair, but the norm right now is 51% of the U.S. workforce is disengaged, and another 20% on top of the 51% is highly disengaged. So that means seven out of 10 workers describe themselves as either disengaged or highly disengaged. Well, how do you get financial performance out of a, a workforce that is that highly disengaged? Or said with the glass half full, imagine how much more productivity, profitability, creativity, innovation, collaboration, teamwork you would get if you could figure out a way to improve that national engagement average. So what I'm seeing, which is fascinating, is more and more engagement is becoming a key due diligence question. Mm. And if you are not ready for it or you're blindsided by it, it's going to sneak up on you like a bad pair of underpants. I'm telling let, you. Let, right. Let's dig into this for a moment. What, how would you define or how are you defining disengagement so the audience can really understand what you mean by that? Well, it means that you, number one, are not up at three in the morning tossing and turning around on ways to innovate and improve the products and services of your business. If you're tossing and turning at all, it's because you're online looking for a new job. But ironically, the most disengaged workers don't even leave. They just stay. They sit in their little cubicle and take paychecks from you, and they're online with their Facebook accounts all day. It's a double whammy. They're not doing any work but they don't want to leave because they think maybe I'll be even more disengaged at the place across the street where it's really frustrating. You know, if you think about this as like a classroom of 11th graders, you know, the A plus students are going to be the A plus students and they're in small numbers. 4% of the workforce are highly engaged. Really what you're affecting is the B and B plus students. There's 25% of the U S workforce that describe themselves as simply engaged, not disengaged, but not highly engaged. That's where your delta is as a business owner. Can you bring some of the 25% up to the 4% of high performers without having them fall into the larger bucket of the 51%? One of the things that leaders of entrepreneurial and, high, and, and closely held companies need to do is really pay attention. I mean, you know, at some point there's going to be on-site due diligence and buyers are going to want to look at your culture and interact with your people. And if what they see is a bunch of people just shuffling their feet or taking, you know, 90 minute coffee breaks and other things like that, they're not just going to walk away. They're going to run away. So pay attention to your disengagement uh, levels, pay attention to your culture. If you really want the numbers to lead, make sure that your culture and your governance and your leadership is in place. I do want to get to, uh, I guess would be biggest mistake number six. 
Okay. This is purely financial. Don't forget about the art and science of recasting, of recasting. Remember, many closely held businesses around the world do what, Andrew? They run their business to mitigate profit, to mitigate profit. Why? Because around the world, one thing that's universal, no one wants to pay more taxes than they need to. But all of a sudden, their business is for sale and they need to maximize profit if their business is going to be measured uh, on a multiple of EBITDA or earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. Well, that's a real dilemma. You've been spending all these years running your business to mitigate profits, and all of a sudden you now need to maximize profits. Uh, some clients have looked at me like, is that fraud? I said, well, it's not fraud, but you may need to recast your numbers or normalize your numbers and ask yourself, what would this business be doing from a financial performance perspective in the hands of the buyer? So if the buyer is a Fortune 1000 company, they're probably not going to be running private school dues or country club dues or your his and her matching Maserati's leases through the business. So those would all be numbers that would be recast, that would be put back into the earnings of the business. And there's hundreds of other examples, fence management examples and other types of things. For, uh, you know, here's an easier recast number. Let's say uh, you have a very expensive CFO. You've been paying $250,000 a year in salary. That CFO will not be part of the offer of the buyer because very few people need more than one CFO. Well, you could recast that $250,000 technically into the forecast in the arms of the buyer, knowing that that expense won't be part of the, uh, of the impact on profitability. Well, remember, multiples of EBITDA can go up to six, eight, nine, even 10 in some areas. Well, that $250,000 CFO might be the equivalent of $2.5 million in purchase price it with the right recast and, and in the arms of the right buyer. And you know that's nothing to sneeze at. So every dollar in recast identified is to be multiplied by the EBITDA multiple that you're likely to get. So another big, big, big mistake that sellers make is not going through a recasting process or having advisors that don't even know what a recast is. And a cousin of that is nepotism. You know, if you've got a family business and there's three nieces and nephews on the payroll that you don't even know how they got there or what they do all day, this would be a good time to cut them off the payroll, not come across as a company that's riddled with nepotism, but also has unnecessary costs running through the business that is influencing uh, your, your ultimate EBITDA. So let me ask you a question about that. In, in the case, you know, and consider that most of our listeners are in Asia, but in the case of uh, business people who are listening to this and they do want to sell their business and truthfully these type of things haven't mattered very much because they're the sole owner or they and their partners are the sole owners so whether they're paying themselves through a bonus or whether they're paying themselves through paying their high rent or fancy car is a little bit irrelevant because they're not representing you know other shareholders let's say they're not a publicly listed company as an example but they want to, you know, get their P&L and their, their financial statements to look more real. And they start to move into this. How long should they do that before they go into the sale? Should they 
try to restructure and recast their P&L to look you know, real and beautiful one year before, six months before, three years before, what is your advice? Oh, I think uh, one to six months before is enough. Um, you know, remember, you don't have to physically change things prior to sale. What you're trying to make sure is that when you're building the forecast and you present the recasted data, and it'll all be carefully explained and footnoted, you're just trying to show the buyer, hey, you know, I was earning a million dollars a year in profit, but that was really two and a half million dollars a year in profit once I present to you this recasted set of financials, because at an eight multiplier, a million dollar profit's going to yield $8 million, but two and a half million dollars of profit is going to yield, you know, $20 million. So yep. that's a big delta to, to be aware of. And I, you know, if you're thinking about selling the business in the next couple of years, just be thinking about, you know, which categories of expenses are critical to the business, like, you know, food costs, if you're in the restaurant business, I mean, you're hopefully at the right ratio of food costs, no matter what. But if you've got, you know, three night managers uh, being paid $80,000 a year and two of them are your daughters and you're just paying them through the business to keep them uh, afloat, that those two $80,000 salaries are not what I would consider to be a real cost of the business. They're more, like you said, a family business convenience, which is fine while it's a family business, but not fine as you prepare to sell the business if you want to present the numbers in their most favorable light. And that, uh, just just a, a follow-up on that before we move on, and that is uh, I do something called world-class benchmarking where I compare the financial performance of any company in the world against global peers. The benefit of some, some sort of benchmarking like that is that you can understand what is the financial position of your company relative to your global peers. And then as you continue to improve that and, and recast that, as you say, um, the value of your business just rises and rises. So some sort of global benchmarking or regional benchmarking can help you to, to guide you on that recasting process. So what's next? Remember, wait, 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 before we leave, I just want to give you a compliment if that's okay. Yeah. Um, another reason why that's very smart advice to your clients is remember, you want to know what metrics a buyer is using. And in all likelihood, they're looking at those same benchmarks and judging you positively or negatively as to how you perform against the benchmarks. So what the other very smart Andrew S. is sharing is important. Know what those benchmarks are, study them, manage to them, but also know that a buyer is going to have those benchmarks and metrics and key performance indicators in their hip pocket as a guidepost in doing the due diligence on your business. And I want to take a short sidetrack right there and highlight something that I've been working on, and that is looking at the performance of large, medium, and small businesses across the world. So I have a data set of about 30,000 companies across the whole world. And in that data set, I normally look at you know aggregates of what's happening in the U.S., what's happening in China, what's happening in Asia, what's happening in Hong Kong. I can calculate all kinds of measures, and I do do that as a financial analyst all my life. That's what I live for. But what I've decided to do recently was what if I broke those into the three classifications of a large, medium, or a small business? And what I've found in that is very remarkable. Um, first thing on the revenue side, what I found is that small business have actually, during this time that has been pretty good for business over the last few years, small businesses have actually been growing their revenue slower than large businesses. They're vulnerable. 
The second thing I looked at was the profit margin of large, medium, small. Exactly. And I want to disclose to all of their listeners, the way that Andrew and I met, true story, I have it in front of me, is I read his article to KPI's Help or Hurt Business, which was published on LinkedIn. And I liked the article so much, I reached out to him and invited him to LinkedIn. He saw my bio and invited me to be on the podcast. So it was the very topic of KPIs that brought these two Andrew S's together. Fantastic. I want to go back to the, the final thing about what I've found from this study, and that is that when profit margins have been rising for the large companies around the world, they've actually been falling for the small companies. Small companies are really vulnerable from this particular boom. They did not benefit as much as large companies. And then the third part of that that I found was the cash conversion cycle of small companies. Small companies are, have a cash conversion cycle that's double the length of large companies, meaning small companies are getting their financing from large companies. And guess what happens when economies turn south? Large companies cut off the, the funding that they provide basically to small companies through their uh, accounts receivables and accounts payable. So the final thing that I've observed is that the leverage of small companies, like most companies right now, is not that high. But for small companies, it's been going down. And I believe that's because the financial system, the banks and others, are starting to slow down lending to that small company. And when problems happen in an economy, then those companies really suffer. So I've been trying to um, study this a lot and go out on a mission to help companies improve their world-class benchmarking scores so that when or if eventually it will happen, the economy goes down, your business doesn't go down with it. So that's something I'm working on. And I just wanted to go back also to one thing about this disengagement point that you've made, which I think is a very critical point. And my point that I make in, in what I think about KPIs is actually what KPIs appear like a savior for Western style management that if we can just measure everything about a person, we can get the most out of them. And I would say that's nonsense. If we were to take, you know, Michael, you know, Angelo, or if we were to take a, you know, all the different people out there that have created amazing things and we tell them that they have to, you know, measure every single thing of what they do, we actually destroy the pride of workmanship in people. So I challenge the listeners to, to, to think about the way that we're trying to think that just by measuring someone's behavior, that we can actually get them to be better. So, wow. That's- I, I did a lot of research for the crisis disengagement book. And what I found is that on the one hand, you are a hundred percent right. If everybody is so busy filling out forms and trying to manage the metrics, it just stifles creativity and innovation. The other side of the spectrum is people want to come in knowing that they're being measured by something, you know, and if it's not going to be the company's overall performance or their division's overall performance or, you know, raw sales data, they just want to know what the something is. Um, Everybody likes to know that there are a couple of metrics that the owner is keeping on his or her dashboard and that those are metrics that uh, they're paying attention to. But to your point, the metrics are not so definitive um, and so narrowing that, you know, everyone just thinks, well, if I, you know, if I just keep hitting this one KPI, but I'm uh, disrespectful and harassing of others, uh, I'll still get a huge bonus because, you know, I hit the KPI as opposed to, you know, being a good human being. Um, so, um, 
Okay, let's let's hit one or two more and then we'll go to the big close. So the next one is 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 around the issue of due diligence preparation. Not just the issues that we've been talking about, but you know, it takes months uh, to populate a data room. It takes months to anticipate all of the questions that a buyer will have. Many sellers wait till the last minute or many sellers don't realize that, you know, the due diligence process is like the old children's game of hot potato. And what you would do with hot potato is you would throw ball back and forth until the teacher blows the whistle. And who's ever holding the ball at the time the whistle is blown is out of the game until there's only one player left. Well, a big part of my job as a lawyer is to play hot potato with the purchase agreement. We use the reps and warranties and holdbacks and indemnification and escrow and all of these legal provisions in the purchase agreement that are driven by the due diligence results. So the more that you can mitigate risk, the more that you can have a clean bill of health and due diligence, don't give the buyer any ammunition to be having extra strong reps and warranties or an extra large out-of-market holdback or indemnity or escrow don't give the buyer any nervousness around the quality of your earnings report, or you're going to see a much bigger ratio of the purchase price in an earnout or contingency or just, you know, a reduction in enterprise value. So uh, really understanding that process, the due diligence lists that are presented to you by various buyers are not just some, you know, lawyer keeping himself or herself busy. It, the outputs of those due diligence reports shape the purchase agreement and the purchase agreement shapes the price and the terms that uh, you're going to get paid. So uh, pay careful attention to your preparation there. All right. I think we're moving up to the to the big thing and to the actionable advice and, and, and probably to the close. I've probably rambled on long enough for any one listener, even listener that's compelled by my excitement is probably here in the <laughs> At this point. So what they want to hear from you now is after all of the experience that you've seen, you've given us a great list of things that we should be preparing ourselves and making sure that we're not making these mistakes. But most importantly, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid a major mistake in the sale of a business? Well, I've got two. So I hope that's okay. That's uh, fine. One is an easy one, and it will sound self-serving, so I'll get it out of the way quick. And that is build the right advisory team. And I'm not saying that just because I am an M&A lawyer, and this is how I make my living. I'm saying it because I can't tell you how many times people, particularly sellers, entrepreneurial, closely held, family-owned business sellers, they get all the wrong advisors. They go to a guy that did their estate plan, or they go to a lawyer that you know handled a piece of commercial litigation for them and they put the fate of their entire business and future generations wealth in the hands of someone that's not that experienced many many times we are the special counsel to somebody's general counsel we are the SWAT team to somebody's you know general shooting capability um, bring you're only gonna hopefully sell your business once uh, you might build other businesses and do it again but you know, a lot of your uh, quantitative and qualitative wealth will come from this transaction. 
have a good team of transactional advisors. And it's not just the lawyers or the accountants, it's other you know, valuation experts and, and good consultants, not the types of tailors that advise the emperor, but people that really know what they're doing, uh, particularly if it's gonna be a cross-border transaction that adds even more complication, both cultural and legal to the deal. So that's point one. But my big, big, big finish and my most actionable advice is to walk a mile in the shoes of the buyer. What is the buyer really buying? The biggest, biggest, biggest mistake is to not really understand what you're selling. I mean, you may have a couple of patents that some patent lawyer a couple of years ago said, ah, these aren't that valuable and you've never paid much attention to them. But because you didn't pay much attention to them, the truth is they're very, very important to the buyer. Think of the buyer as building this enterprise and maybe you are the last missing puzzle piece that will drive value. So the buyer comes along and offers you $10 million and you think, oh my God, $10 million, that's so much money. I can live so comfortably with it. The truth is to the buyer, you're worth a hundred million or 200 million. Now that doesn't mean they're ever going to tell you that. It doesn't mean they're ever going to pay that. But if you can figure out why is this company interested in me? What is it that they're really truly buying? Even if they won't disclose it to you, which they rarely do, you can take the time to understand it. I heard a great quote on my way back to my office from a meeting today. I think it was an interview on NPR. And all I kept thinking about was how I want to say that quote on tonight's podcast or tonight East Coast Time podcast. And that was, it was an advice to buyers. And the advice to buyers was transact to transform, transact to transform. There are people running around on radio shows and podcasts telling buyers that if you really want to affect change in your business, buy companies. Buying companies has always been a faster path than building things organically. But where sellers make the biggest, biggest, biggest mistake is not understanding why the buyer's really buying your business and selling at a much lower price than they really, really should. So that's probably my big finish, my biggest, most important piece of advice. And it has been an absolute pleasure being on the show. And I can't wait to be on again sometime. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. And I, I'll throw in a couple of things that I take away from that final advice. Um, the first thing uh, that I would take away from that is what you're telling us is that we have every right to do our due diligence work and into why the buyer is buying. And, and I believe that we have every right to even go and ask that buyer, hey, I would like to talk to some people in your company to understand more about you and what you guys are doing and understand you know, where you're coming from. And I think that the, the point is, is that with just a small amount of work, you can figure out what they see in the company you know, that you're selling. But even if you don't find out what they see in the company, uh, one of the best deals that I've ever done, I use, and from evermore after that deal, I used the simple words, and that was, I said, when they made their offer, I said, you're going to have to do better than that. The right. best words I ever said, because I didn't tell them how much better. I just told them, they're going to have to do better. And I thought, well, if they give me $5 million more, well, fantastic. Well, in the end, they gave 40 million more. 
And I had no way of knowing that. And therefore, I'm never going to give it away. I'm always going to say, you're going to have to do better than that. And I think that that is a, a great way of really highlighting what it means, you know, in what you're saying. So, wow. Any, any other final thoughts on that? I would just say that once you've asked the question that you've asked, once you've negotiated, you know, I remember a client years ago, we sold the company for about 80 million. Uh, we probably could have held out for a little bit more. The same team that helped this entrepreneur build the company stayed within the Fortune 500 and grew it to a billion dollar division. And I said to him about 10 years later, I said, does that upset you? And he said, you know what? It used to. He said, but I have no regrets. And now I'm just proud that I started something that became a billion dollar division. And he said, truthfully, I was getting kind of burnt out. I don't know if I could have really grown it to a billion dollars. I couldn't have scaled the way that Fortune 500 scaled. So I would say absolutely understand the motivation of the buyer. Absolutely negotiate till you're done negotiating. But once you go to closing, no regrets. No regrets. You can always beat yourself up over an extra dollar that you might have had. And if you're that smart, then start another company within the you know parameters of the non-compete that you sign and do it again. Yep. And we're seeing a lot more of that. We're seeing serial entrepreneurs that have built businesses, sell them at 35, build another one, sell it at 40, build another one, sell it at 45. And you know, by the time you hit the ripe old age of 50 years old, you've built up a significant amount of wealth. And also, and this is really the important part, you've empowered a lot of other people. A lot more entrepreneurs today are not just interested in building wealth for themselves, but they want to build wealth for the people around them. And you know, that's uh, that's been a really refreshing evolution of this next generation of entrepreneurs coming up. I'd like to uh, wrap up now with a, a, a small joke uh, that would go on to your final point there. Um, we have an old saying in America that we used to say, and they probably still say it, it's a, a native Indian saying, which is walk a mile in the other man's moccasins before you make a judgment. And the joke about that is because no matter what happens, you're a mile away and you got the guy's moccasins. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last, last question. What is your number one goal for the next 12 months? You know, I'll be 58 years old in a few weeks. And my number one goal is to stay healthy, stay above ground, continue to be a good father and husband and provider, good mentor to the younger lawyers that are, that are working with me, who's hopefully shaping their careers. And so I'd say my number one goal is to do pretty much 12 months of the same exact thing I've been doing for the last 33 years. Fantastic. And I think once your goals are working, you know, there is no big need to change them. Maybe the answer will be different in a few years if I'm back on the show. But for now, yep. it's doing a lot more of what I've been doing. Fantastic. Well, listeners, there you have it. What a wealth of experience we've gotten from this interview to keep us winning. To find more stories and previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Andrew, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about others and our losers, but our listeners are learning so much as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Stay strong, 
stay focused and build the business every day as if it's for sale because one day it will be. Fantastic. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.